interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Well, today is Tuesday, January 24th, and welcome. Uh, we have uh, quite a program today. Uh, I have um, the attorney who just got done arguing in front of the Supreme Court last week as my guest, and we'll, we'll get into that after I do the introduction. So if those of you who have been following, you know that what I try to do is to bring something from Grace's life related to the program if I can. And uh, so today we're going to be talking about hospitals unilaterally taking away our rights. And bigger picture, of course, the government is trying to take away all of our rights. And one of the rights they want to take away is our ability to even have cows um, because of their methane. So Grace, we have steers in Buffalo and Grace helped me uh, with the chores relative to the steers in Buffalo. And she was a great helper and she was protecting our right to eat meat and when she was with me it was interesting because we'd pull in to our our uh, farm and the the steers would start bellering right away because they knew if i had grace with me she always had treats so it was was neat don can you bring in the first the picture of grace oh, i'm i gotta toggle back here sorry don Okay, yeah, so this is Grace with Mama Cow. So Mama's our, our most loyal cow. We can go right up to her and pet her. And then Don, can you bring in the video? You're doing a great job, Grace. So that's one of Mama's calves. Uh, Grace named her Rosebud. Uh, she just about died. I ended up staying at, at the farm for three days to nurse her back to health. And she had her first calf this last year. So uh, it's it's pretty neat stuff to to see that come full, full circle. So it, what I want to do is, um, before I introduce um, Karen, I, I want to also tell you that Grace, she got this. You know, so these animals, she realized, I mean, we not only are we taking care of them, but she got the end game. So she named them, you know, so names like sirloin, hamburger, T-bone, you know, she got the end game and you know, we, I didn't have to, I didn't have to tell her a little fib regarding that. So today what we're going to do is take a little bit different angle on the hospital hostage negotiations, uh, which has been a theme that we've been on since the beginning. Uh, this topic, in my opinion, gets the least amount of press uh, because they're censoring the hospital killing lane. And the reason I believe they're censoring that lane that we're in and, and Karen's in is because if this gets exposed, it's it's a deal killer. People can't handle a doctor or nurse uh, murdering or doing what they did to John Zingzheim. So my guest today is Karen Mueller. Don, can you bring Karen in? As I said, Karen presented the oral arguments last week to the Wisconsin Supreme Court in what I consider the highest priority case in the country right now, and we're waiting for that decision. Uh, Karen is the founder and general counsel of the Amos Center for Justice and Liberty. She has worked in the areas of civil rights, employment law, and elder law. She's been an ally of the Alliance Defending Freedom, Freedom since 2008 and has served on the board of Wisconsin State Bar, Bar Civil Rights Section since 2013. In 2020, she founded the Amos Center for Justice and Liberty, and she watched our civil and constitutional rights being trampled by government actors or others working to accomplish the government's goals. So welcome, Karen. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me on, Scott. It's a real pleasure. So, and I love seeing the pictures of Grace. Um, well, it was beautiful. Um, and I really enjoyed the way she got it um, <laughs> regarding sirloin T-bone. <laughs> um, we have great memories. Um, it's, it's very sad. It's very tragic. 
um, uh, what happened to her. And I know you feel that loss every day. Um, I don't have that personal loss, but what I do do is I get stories from people around the country every day. Um, I spent hours uh, and have spent hours on the phone with families all over this country, all over this state. And uh, so uh, sadly, I'm somewhat of an expert on uh, on the tragic deaths that uh, people like uh, Grace and countless other people experienced um, over the past uh, two years. Well, so. you have become, you definitely have become an expert. Uh, and I, I have done the same thing, but from a completely different angle. You know, I'm, I'm just a dad, but, you know, this Grace's situation opened up uh, a number of rabbit holes that I've ended up getting into. And so, you know, obviously this is another one. People wonder, why are you so interested in this case? Well, this case is very analogous to the situation with Grace. So you have a medical community that operates outside of the rule of law. And, you know, they did that with Grace relative to uh, not providing informed consent. They did it with an illegal DNR order and they did it with John Zingsheim. So this case has the potential to set a precedent for all kinds of um, abuse that's been happening for many, many years, but has come to a head with COVID. So before we get into the questions, Karen, can you give the audience a background of the case? Uh, yes, I can. Um, I think I'm going to start out just uh, so people know what we are going to be talking about. Um, this is about uh, what was at the core of uh, the case on uh, Tuesday was the healthcare power of attorney statute, uh, which is Wisconsin's. And uh, the reason it was so important was because in addition to our statute giving uh, the power of people to appoint somebody as their health care agent, this statute, in my opinion, also gives substantive rights. And that's what I told the judges. And so that's different. Um, it's unique to Wisconsin. There could be other states <clears throat> that also provide the substantive rights. But the fact that it was right in, the, in this uh, statutory form, I think, is somewhat unique. And uh, so that is important for everybody in the state of Wisconsin to understand what is at stake here. Um, but this case goes back to October of uh, 2021, and I was contacted by Alan Gall. He was the nephew of uh, John Zingzheim, and he had been appointed as the power of attorney uh, for health care under this statute, which is Wisconsin Statute 155.30. And uh, he had indicated that his uncle was in the hospital. He had been at a different um, Aurora hospital and was transferred um, to uh, Aurora Summit in Waukesha. And uh, he wanted me to help. Um, I said, I've never done anything in this area and uh, the family, they had been calling multiple attorneys, and uh, he had reached uh, an attorney in New York, Ralph Larigo, who had already been, these, been doing these cases. And so I became local counsel, and Ralph Larigo was in charge of, of uh, the case uh, since he had done them before. And um, so what ended up happening is we went into a uh, conference hearing uh, with Judge uh, Lloyd Carter of Waukesha Circuit Court. And in a two-part hearing, two days, uh, first of all, we were asking for uh, the judge to order the court or order the hospital to administer ivermectin. By that time, John Zingzheim had been on a ventilator and uh, the information that Alan Gall was being given was that there was nothing other than um, a ventilator and to give him remdesivir. And uh, the family already knew that there was uh, uh, significant safety issues with remdesivir. Uh, you can look at the NIH 
uh, chart 2E document and right there, even though on the one hand, the, the federal government is saying, yeah, this is the drug of choice. They also indicate that there are serious toxicity issues with both the liver and with the kidney. And uh, so uh, the family had heard about the ivermectin and they wanted the hospital to try that and the hospital refused. And so that's how um, under this statute, Alan had the right to go into court and uh, to ask for um, a remedy. And in this case would be to get an injunction. Um, and uh, we also ask for a declaratory re relief regarding this statute. And uh, so the court, the first day said that uh, they had to, the hospital had to administer the drug. Um, the hospital had contacted uh, the court that night in a letter and the court uh, decided to rethink what they had done. And they came up with a second order the next day. And in that order, they said that the family could get their own, uh, they could get their own physician who could then come in, examine Mr. Zingzyme, uh, determine if ivermectin was appropriate. And if so, then that new doctor could administer it. And uh, the family already had also agreed to hold the hospital harmless. And um, so they really were hold them harmless for the use of ivermectin, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, what so was there was, the, yeah. Well, what was the angle with uh, the hospital wanting to, what was the context of the letter of the hospital writing to the circuit court? What, what was the, what was the angle they were trying to get at? Well, they had grave concerns in, that's their word, they had grave concerns over the uh, order that, uh, um, the order to show cause that uh, the, uh, that the court um, had signed and uh, because they didn't feel that they should have to um, be forced to give a drug that, and, and this is critical, this is what they said from the beginning, um, their position was that no court had any right to intervene in a case where they said that the medical treatment fell beneath their standard of care. Now, you have to juxtapose that against um, and understand that ivermectin is a drug that's been around for 40 years. Um, it won a Nobel Prize. It has been safe for human use. It is approved by the FDA but it was never approved specifically for COVID use. And so you juxtapose that against remdesivir, which I've already said has a high rate of toxicity. Um, it has a staggering right. rate of death associated with it. And that's the drug of choice that the hospital said, and, and they were freely giving that. So ivermectin fell beneath the standard of care for patient safety, but remdesivir somehow is above their level of care for state patient safety. So you can see the hypocrisy of this issue. Um, but anyway, they did end up getting another um, uh, hearing and we went back in and uh, the lawyers argued. And so the revised order was that the family would find their own doctor. And keep in mind that uh, we had agreed to this and the hospital, uh, their attorney even wrote the new order and uh, sent a letter to the judge uh, stating that uh, they had called me and I and we had agreed to um, everything that they had put into the revised order. And so everything was done except the judge hadn't signed it when the appeals court swooped in and took the case and stayed the order. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah, it's it's hard to grasp. I mean, so you know, the hospital is really saying that whatever their standard of care is, you have to accept as a patient regardless if you enter their hospital. Is that that's essentially what the hospital was saying, correct? Right. Not not only is that a correct statement, but you can see from the example I gave that it's arbitrary and capricious. There, there's no rhyme or reason to this, um, because if they have a huge safety concern with the drug that they're saying is, you know, above patient safety and a drug with no 
issues regarding safety falls beneath their standard, um, you know, the world's ups, um, upside down, right? That's, I, that's I, where we're here. I agree. I think it's complete insanity. Um, it after I did part one, uh, a nurse expert uh, contacted me. So I did part one last week to introduce this case. And this is what she wrote, Karen. She wrote in Tor this is regarding the, the slippery slope of standard of care. So this is a nurse expert. She wrote to me and I'm quoting what she wrote. In tort law, standard of care is a critical element. Cases are lost or won on this merit. Did the healthcare professional violate the standard of care? Here is the legal definition of standard of care. Quote, the degree of care that a reasonable, prudent person would exercise under the same or similar circumstances. In the case of a professional, it is the degree of care that a reasonably prudent person in that profession would exercise under the same or similar circumstances, end quote. So legally, the standard of care is, you know, it seems like an obvious definition. And um, another piece of the standard of care that was a, a, a strange twist, and she, she made this comment too, she said, legally, the standard of care is not established by an individual physician. So then the question I have for you is, how is the standard of care established in a hospital? Um, I think the whole concept is very fluid, and I do not believe that Aurora's position was the correct position. Um, and so I can't speak to, um, uh, basically, they said, yes, this falls beneath our standard of care. And uh, the problem is, is that standards of care evolve over time. And they evolve with uh, uh, doctor practices, not hospital practices. And it became very apparent to me that there was something wrong with this standard of care. Again, I already said uh, that it made no sense. Um, but beyond that, um, it is, uh, I think everybody in this country by now has at least heard the term COVID-19 protocols. And it's my belief um, that the COVID-19 protocols that were put out by Medicare Medicaid are in fact masquerading as the hospital's standards of care. Um, and I think I've got a lot of evidence to put that forth simply because if I'm getting calls from all over the country and every person that's calling me says their loved one died in the same way and everybody got rem remdesivir, everybody asked for ivermectin and it was withheld. Um, and then you've got the majority of people that were treated in the same way. You're starting to see a pattern here. And it is that pattern that is very suspicious and points to the fact that there is a common cause here, uh, a causality issue. And I believe that that is the protocols that came out of Medicare, Medicaid. And from there, they are simply the ones that have the uh, reimbursement power for Medicare, Medicaid. But in an actuality, where did the policies come from? Well, they came from Health and Human Services. I'm sure that they're, um, we're talking about Fauci. Um, we're talking about any number of uh, people that are leading uh, FDA, CDC. This didn't happen overnight. It just didn't. And yet it is uh, through the CMS that the hospital boards, and I want to be very clear on that. This is. Um, the families that I've talked to all over the country, all over the state, any number of them said they took the doctor aside and said, why won't you give the ivermectin? And the doctor would say, because I'll lose my job. And yet at the hearing that we were at um, a couple of days ago, um, Aurora Hospital unbelievably said that uh, it is the doctor's decision. I was completely shocked when I heard that. When it first came out of his mouth, my reaction to myself was, he is blatantly lying. He's literally lying to the court. You know, this, um, this is your discussion here is a great segue into uh, what I want to share regarding the history of standard of care. And so, Don, while you bring up that article, I, I just want to say, um, you know, another thing that shocked me is it seems like some of the justices 
were not educated as to what is really happening. Uh, that that shocked me also. But this article that Don's bringing up, Don, can you scroll down to? I'll, I'll let you know when it's towards towards the middle. All right, standards of care without. So standards from without. The first paragraph here. I'm going to read this. I've got it in my notes because it's hard. Okay, so. Uh, Karen, you can follow along with me. So this this article is about the the history of the standard of care, uh, not intentionally, but it, it is when you hear what I have to say. So that first paragraph says, in part, the medical profession was responding to pressures from third party payers who looked to standards to reduce unnecessary healthcare services. In 1981, the American College of Physicians and the Blue Cross and Blue Sh Shield Association launched the Clinical Efficacy Assessment Project to evaluate use of specific medical procedures and technologies. By the late 1980s, the Healthcare Financing Administration, which administered the Medicare and Medicaid programs, was using medical standards of care to develop both national coverage policy and medical review criteria for its programs. So you can see what's going on is that we have uh, cost-cutting measures that are being implemented, and then they're becoming national standards of care. And this this is so nefarious. So you'll remember, Karen, back on March 23rd of 2010, that's the day Obamacare was passed, and yes. Ezekiel, Ezekiel Emanuel, he's the chief architect of Obamacare. This yes. is what he said all the way back to 1996. So you can see this is being set up in the 80s. We got to cost contain, which of course, I mean, I, I get the idea that you have to cost contain, but it can't be at the expense of people's lives. So what he said in 1996, remember, he's the chief architect. He said, services provided to individuals who are irreversibly prevented from being or becoming participating citizens are not basic and should not be guaranteed. So you can see what's going on here. So anyway, Karen, the question I have for you, I, I want your comment on that, but then how can we ever have objective standards of care if they're handed down by the government? We can't. It's impossible. And again, it should be the physicians and it should evolve over time. And um, one of the things uh, that I wanted to say, I had a lot of things to say um, uh, at the uh, Supreme Court, uh, but you could see that uh, there was a lot of questions that were being thrown at me. Um, right. And uh, so there was an awful lot of points that I wasn't able to make there. And again, that makes me very appreciative of this time. Um, so we're in a pandemic. That's where we start out. I right. can't imagine how we could have a standard of care for an unknown virus um, that is coming in and supposedly is going to kill millions. How could you have a standard of care? That just makes no sense, either medically or even legally, how you could hold anybody to that standard. You can't. And so when it became apparent that people in the hospitals were being put on these COVID protocols, I was scratching my head going, how could that possibly be? Right. And I believe that there were different tracks. And uh, you you know, talk about... Um, um, Ezekiel, um, um, back then, I remember what was going on. Um, I was very much opposed to uh, Obamacare and um, how that all went down, too. And I remember Sarah, Sarah Palin talking right. about the, the bringing in the death panels, and I absolutely believed that that would happen. But I have to say, Scott, that I'm astounded that the death panels are here, but they don't look like what I imagined or frankly, what Sarah Palin imagined. We imagined a panel of people deciding one by one life or death, but that's not how it's unrolled. It is unrolled through COVID-19 protocols where there are decision trees within the um, uh, electronic medical records and so these decisions are made before the patient even comes in the hospital. I don't know if you're aware of that, but it's something that you should take a look at or that we can talk about uh, more later. Um, but it's a very important point. 
Well, I, I think it's it's absolutely a critical point. So you're you're spot on with that, Karen. And what they did, so we know death panels are happening illegally. But then I, I exposed this a couple of weeks ago uh, in a, in several podcasts and wrote a paper on it on November 23rd. The Health and Human Services Secretary literally put in place a new death panel legally under the public health emergency. So now because he has unilateral authority under a public health emergency, he signed into law, the equivalent of law, a new death panel um, just the day before Thanksgiving. So Don, what I, I wanna uh, have you play this first clip now and, is, and then when we're done, Karen, I want you to comment about this clip. What you're asking us to do, if I'm asking you what the rule is, what I'm hearing you say is, we want you to rule that even though the circuit court did not cite any law. Uh, we want you to disregard that in your ruling, Supreme Court, and we want you to say that as long as an individual has a power of attorney and is principle, they can come in and ask for anything. They can ask for a treatment such as ivermectin that has not been approved to treat COVID. They could ask for any type of medicine in any type of situation. Uh, as long as the uh, power of attorney has been signed. Is that what you're asking us to do here? No, that is not what I'm asking you to do. Clearly, um, we had proven uh, to the court that there was irreparable harm that would be caused and that there was no other adequate remedy at law and that in order to maintain the status quo, which uh, we How believe How do you know that, the, that you proved that to the circuit court? What finding did the court make regarding irreparable harm? Regarding the irreparable harm, uh, the court relied on Alan Gall's statements as the health care power of attorney and in his affidavit, uh, which you can find at page I'm not four asking about the affidavit. I'm asking what did the judge say? What, what, what factors? How do we know the judge considered certain factors? What find, what, as a circuit court judge, right? I was a circuit court judge. Mm -hmm. And you say, I've listened mm -hmm. to all the testimony and I'm making mm -hmm. the following findings. And then you talk about the findings that you're made, that you are making based on the testimony that you've listened to or the evidence that has been submitted. What findings in this case did the judge make regarding irreparable harm? The court found based on the statements of Alan Gall in his, um, affidavit that Mr. Zingzheim was in dire circumstances and that the hospital had no other treatment. They were offering nothing else other than a ventilator for him. And because of that, the irreparable harm was found. And he did orally go through this with attorney Ralph Larigo. So Piggybacking off that question by Justice Krofsky, what, what are the limits that you're, you're saying this was the inherent authority of the court to do this, right? Because there was no law cited, we've all agreed on that. So no law cited, inherent authority of the court. What are the limits on that? A court, could a court, <coughs> when presented with any situation under its inherent authority, issue an order? I mean, wh where, where do we stop here if you're saying that that's the inherent authority of the court? Thank you for the question. It needs to be necessary. That is what the statute says. What statute? That would be statute 155. Okay, and I do want to get to 155. So 155, what is, you're saying, where in 155, which point 30, sub one, is that where you're relying on? Right. Okay, where does it say there? <laughs> about anything about being necessary? Where does it say anything? I mean, it. Where does this give the authority at all for the court to act? So, Karen, of course, I want you to comment. I just I get wound up when I see that clip. And, you know, do as you comment, I want you to answer the question. Uh, do we have the right to life and autonomy over our own bodies or not? I mean, that's the, you know, so the inherent authority of a court is is it comes from we have we have the right to life. You know, what we're comparing, you know, you drill it down to what we're comparing here is they only offered a ventilator and tell the family that's all we have and, you know, John's going to die. So, I mean, a ventilator is a 90% kill rate. Doesn't the man have a right to life? So anyway, I'm, 
you, you've got to out settle down while you answer, Garen. Um, I I answered that uh, there that the court has the inherent authority, and I stand by that that yep. the court had the ability under Wisconsin Constitution to intervene because we were talking about a fundamental right to life, and um, so that is one issue. Um, now, they would go back and they would say, well, there's no governmental actor, and so it doesn't apply. Um, I can make several arguments about that, and one of them is, is that if they're using the COVID-19 protocols, uh, there is the federal hands that are in uh, that are in these decisions, and the doctors are not making the decisions. But I would like to focus, and um, as I tried to direct her back um, to Wisconsin Statute 155.30, and um, uh, because that was at the center of my argument on Tuesday, and uh, it was very difficult. I, I was having a very difficult time in trying to, um, for some reason, communicate with them that the right is there. And I'm going to read this to you. It's very short. And you tell me what you as a, uh, a principal, if you were to sign this document, because this is mandatory language in the Wisconsin Healthcare Power of Attorney. And it starts out, this is on page one of the Power of Attorney. Notice to the person making this document, you have the right to make decisions about your health care. No health care may be given to you over your objection, and necessary health care may not be stopped or withheld if you object. Now, this is where my arguments were, and they were on the statute. I made it clear that we weren't there to argue what was the best drug. My point was that the appeals court gutted this statute, and that was very important to establishing um, that John Zingzyme and Grace and every other person in Wisconsin had a right to ask for and receive necessary treatment. And then I was trying to uh, begin to talk about what is necessary. Well, it's necessary if, for one thing, you are ill and you are in very bad circumstances, especially if the hospital says, no, nah, we've given up on you. It's the ventilator and palliative care. So if you're there and if the drug is relatively safe, which we easily proved with just the NIH uh, chart 2E, um, right. then there would be no reason for the hospital to legally withhold that treatment and um, so that was the essence of the argument. It wasn't about horse paste. It wasn't about leeching and the things that the justices were asking me about. And it made it very difficult to get out the points that went to the core of why we were there and what the argument was. Basically, the power of attorney statute in Wisconsin, this is unique to Wisconsin, not only does it have a mechanism where you appoint your healthcare agent, but again, I maintained that it also grants substantive rights and it's right in the document. It's, it, it's and, right there. Yeah. And, You're right I went, and uh, towards the end in my five minutes, I believe I proved that um, after Aurora had their 30 minutes and they came back to me at the end. I think I was able to succinctly prove um, my points um, as to why this uh, goes right to the legislative intent. Um, um, intent. For one thing, I would just say to anybody in Wisconsin, if this doesn't say that you have rights, then how do we know that the legislature means anything? Okay, and how do we know that a court can't came along, come along and change the words of any statute? And that's what we were arguing was that the appellate court gutted the legislative attempt intent of this statute and that they can't do. And this was the court's own precedence is well settled 
on plain meaning of a statute analysis. And that was another point that I was making is, is that they need to deal with the appellate court's decision in overturning the circuit court and staying that order to grant him that right because the appellate court, they did away, this was on the first page of the statute. That's very important to understand the statutory form. There's six pages. This is on page one right at the top, the very first paragraph. And so what the appellate court said regarding that is page, this page number one, they said it's informative and instructive only. And then they discarded it. And my point was, how could that be true when as an estate planning attorney, I myself um, have to adhere to the statute. And in subsection two, what it says is attorney, if you do a customized power of attorney, which I've done in the past, you have to do one of two things. You either need to give them this first page, which includes the rights that we've laid out, the, we the legislature, or in the alternative, at the bottom of your customized form attorney, you have to state that you have fully informed your clients of the rights that are on page one. So, and then I have to sign it and swear that I did that. So those are my two choices. So if a legislature is that adamant about making sure that, um, uh, that people keep those six pages intact and, and it, it basically proves that they meant it, that they said, this is important. These are substantive rights. And well, so, I yeah, yeah. And I think your argument of that, especially how you closed it up at the end was, was right on. I had, while I was watching that, I was able, because I bought the subscription, I was able to watch and pause and I had, uh, state statute 155 and specifically 0 0.30 up on my screen. So I was literally looking at the statute and then your comments on, I thought, I mean, this is, is, is so cut and dry. It seemed, you know, it's obvious to a common person. I'm just a dad. I read, I think, oh, this is, it's obvious. Why are we even here? Well, we, I mean, that, that gave me a lot of hope in the case because they chose to list, they chose to bring this case to the Supreme court, realizing you know, I think they must have realized to bring it there that the appellate court really screwed up. <clears throat> Is that your sure. perspective also? I, I might have a different perspective than that. Um, you um, go, go ahead. You, you're, you're the attorney. I'm just a dad. Um, after, um, um, no, I think I'll skip that. I, I won't comment on that right now. Um, okay. I'll tell you some other time. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um, so it, what I wanted to ask next is, you know, the a question I think people would have is, isn't this case, case moot because John Singzheim is now out of the hospital and living? No. Um, and, and that was brought up by Justice Hagedorn. Um, <clears throat> the reason it's not moot, there's, there's a couple of points. And mo the most peculiar is the fact that from the very beginning, um, when we brought this case, Aurora argued that it should not become moot. Isn't that interesting? My guess, interesting. my guess is, is that they expected John Zingzheim to die, and they wanted to make sure that this rule was put into stone and that nobody <sighs> would appeal it after that. And uh, because from the very beginning, again, it's worth repeating their rule that they wanted was no court can intervene if we say that the treatment requested falls beneath their standard of care for patient safety. I say to that, if they're successful at that, then the killing fields of the hospitals are wide open into perpetuity. Isn't that sad? I mean, this goes to the heart of your case and every other case, um, because in Wisconsin, and, and, and so that was the first point. Um, but uh, beyond that, it's not moot. We asked for injunctive relief. We also asked for declaratory relief. We wanted this question answered. And um, so even if the injunctive relief was no longer 
um, asked for, we still had asked for declaratory relief. Um, and beyond that, when we petitioned for review, um, it was on uh, the, uh, it, it was along the lines of this case is going to affect people over and over again, these circumstances. Um, and it has, it has um, just the, the people that I've heard from in the last year, um, the horrib horribly sad stories uh, talking about, they disregarded, I'm the power of attorney, Karen, they disregarded what I had to say. And I know that's that's really tough in your case too, your circumstances, but but they did that and they didn't have the authority. And here's here's a larger point, and that's that if I am right in that the COVID-19 protocols are masquerading as standards of care in hospitals, then what we have is the federal government um, stepping in and trumping, trumping, sorry, um, um, a state statute. We, we've got several different constitutional issues there. We've got the possibility of the 10th Amendment issue there. Uh, the state, the, uh, this is um, uh, certainly health care uh, and licensing of healthcare facilities and the regulatory oversight. Uh, this is supposed to be a state uh, right. Uh, where where did the power come uh, to the federal government to come in and say, oh, this statute doesn't work. Uh, um, we're going to uh, take away people's rights. We have rights under our Wisconsin Constitution. We have a right to life. And so it becomes very complicated. And so there's all sorts of litigation uh, that we can look at down the road. Well, I you you've you've really summarized that well karen uh you know so so people have a, a example outside of remdesivir and ventilator so this is this idea of standard of care is is way bigger than just standard of care it is it's literally about patients rights so those of you who have been following grace's story know that i was taken out on October 10th, Grace died on October 13th. I was taken out on October 10th by an armed guard. And the motivation for that uh, situation was the head nurse said the last three nurse, last three shifts of nurses don't want you in the room. And it was because I was challenging the quote standard of care. So for example, feeding Grace. I knew we could feed Grace. They refused. They wouldn't let me feed her and they would not feed her. I said, listen, we can feed Grace. All we have to do is remove this BiPAP. We put the low flow cannula on. I've watched them do it when they get Grace's mouth moist because the BiPAP dries out her mouth. All we have to do is do this and then we can feed her. We don't have to worry about the oxygen. It stays up fine during that time. And Grace was alert. I mean, she could be fed no problem. She's just gonna be fed with the BiPAP mask on. And these nurses would say, nope, the doctor won't let us do anything other than put the, the cannula on high flow at setting 40. I said, it doesn't have to be that way. And I said, bluntly, I said, listen, I am in charge of my daughter's care, not the doctor. And that statement is what literally got me taken out by an armed guard. So this case is near and dear to my heart. This is, this is a big, big deal. It's uh, huge. Don, can you play the second clip now, please? Um, one other mischaracterization perhaps that we uh, might need to address because it came up in some of the amicus briefs is that um, it was the hospital, Aurora Summit, which made decisions or which declined to administer ivermectin in this case to Mr. Zingsheim. And that is uh, respectfully, I would say, not an accurate representation here. There are affidavits that have been placed in the records, particularly from Dr. Holmberg and Dr. Letzer, who were uh, members of the treatment team whose affidavits established that, in fact, they have personal knowledge of the treatment that was being rendered to Mr. Zingsheim. They had access to his records. They had spoken and worked with a, a team of, of specialists that comprised four different uh, teams of specialties that were providing care. They have patient-specific uh, uh, information for him uh, that they are able to render. It was their decision, and they established through those affidavits. It was the doctor's decisions who were making the, the case 
nothing in the affidavits or any materials to indicate that the hospital had any type of treatment protocol that was governing or that was forcing the doctors to act in any specific way. Are you saying that the hospital then had not determined that the administration of ivermectin uh, was below the standard of care required in the hospital for the treatment of COVID-19? Your Honor, it is the position of the doctors, and one of the factors that they okay, address. My question goes to the hospital, because that's what you're talking about. You said to us the hospital didn't preclude this, and my question to you is, my reading of the record made me believe that the hospital decided that, that the provision of ivermectin was below the standard of care that the hospital had set. Now, I know physicians uh, are the ones that work with the board to set the standard of care for the hospital. So I just want to be sure, was this below the standard of care that the hospital required or not? No, the hospital did not require any particular standard of care. The standard of care is determined by the individual physicians. In fact, um, it would be an unusual hospital to have a standard of care. and for treatments that go on in the hospital, but Aurora doesn't have that, right? Well, Your Honor, the hospital does not actually practice medicine in other. I, I get that. I, you know, I'm married to a physician now for more than 60 right. years, if you can believe So I know a little bit about what doctors do. Um, but they work in conjunction with the hospital, and I just want to be sure that I don't misunderstand the hospital had no standard of care that the administration of ivermectin would have caused a problem with. That's correct, Your okay, Honor. Good. Thank right. you. Thank you. So I'll just frame this. Of course, I commented on it before because you know this uh, attorney. When I heard this, I thought right right away. I thought he's lying, but then it, my mind went to okay, if the the thirty nine thousand dollar federal bonus that they got for putting John Zingsheim on a ventilator. Who got that? Did Aurora get it or the individual doctor who signed the order get it? So anyway, that's uh, a rhetorical question, but I'd like your comments about that clip, Karen. Uh, what I can say is um, what, what, uh, what I read was, uh, and uh, I was prepared to say, um, was that from the very beginning, the hospital put into their briefs that um, that uh, there is <clears throat> that it was their standard of care. It was very they they never said doctor. They they didn't allude to that. Somewhere later on in the briefing, it did switch to treatment team, but that's not where it was at the beginning. Um, at the very beginning, and, and the thing is, is that uh, we have other players here, too. Um, the AMA filed an amicus brief, and uh, when they were going to file that, um, when they first um, made a motion uh, to file the amicus brief, uh, they put right into the motion that they had played a role in determining the standard of care in the Gall case. And I'm, I was shocked. Wow. I thought, you got to be kidding me. You put that right in there. Um, evidently, they were quite, quite proud of that. And, and so there's a larger picture here, and it is in our federal government. And the CMS is the vehicle the vehicle that is being used um, uh, to basically tell the medical systems boards how it's going to be. Yes. And it is going to be, you're going to follow these protocols. And if you don't, you, um, I believe that uh, they're having their reimbursement withheld. And if they do do certain things, it's kind there, of the carrot and the stick. There's there's carrots. That carrots are the thirty nine thousand on the ventilator. 
The carrots are the remdesivir. Most people aren't aware that remdesivir and baricitinib were on a joint EUA. Most people don't know that. And um, I, I, that don't, I don't know if Grace was on that, but, and, and I think you and I had talked about that once too. We did. Mm-hmm. But baricitinib is a very dangerous drug, very dangerous. Um, um, in fact, uh, at least I've made that point before, um, because baricitinib in its side effects says that it can cause blood clots and it can cause upper respiratory bacterial infections, which becomes sepsis, which many of the people that die on the ventilator have by the time they get there. Why would you ever give that to a person who's got a viral pneumonia of any type? You would never give them something. It's kind of like throwing uh, gas on a flame. And, and that's what baricitinib is. But back in March of 2020, um, they came up, the FDA came up with this joint EUA between remdesivir and baricitinib. Um, and so because of that, that those two drugs, when they're administered um, to the same patient, they end up with immunity. Isn't that nice? Well, when you look at the study for baricitinib and remdesivir together, I mean, it's so crystal clear. The study shows that it the placebo group does substantially better than the drug group. Uh, you know this this yeah, the, uh, the drug e, group is dead. It, well, the and exactly right. So it's easy to do better. The this EUA authority that they have under the public health emergency is so egregious. In April of 2022, so now just process this. We're 27 months into this, and instead of removing the EUA, I think I called it an EAU before, instead of removing the EUA for remdesivir, which we already have the statistics showing what's going on. I mean, it's already been in testimony, but instead Uh of removing it, they approve it for anybody. It becomes the only drug you can use if you're 28 days and older. I mean, Uh it's it's insanity. And, Uh you know, that's your point about the federal government is really, you know, these, these hospitals have literally become arms of the government. Mm-hmm. Um, I have access to over 300 cases um, that um, I recently uh, acquired. And uh, in every case, they're lost souls. They're, they're gone. Um, and they lost their lives in a hospital. And in every single case, that patient got remdesivir. Yeah. And that's because the federal government incentivized um, by a 20% bonus, basically an overpayment. Um, if a person's got a $100,000 bill, hospital bill, they get an extra 20% by giving the remdesivir. And then think about, okay, so if they just give the baricitinib with that, then they get the joint immunity too. Who wouldn't want that? And then after about five days, the people end up on a ventilator and they get the 39000 Um, And I know they get something for going um, into the ICU. And pretty soon, sadly, they go out the back door and their families, loved ones were tortured, just like you were. And then to add, um, you know, they won't let the loved one in the room. And then in order to, at the end of life, in order for a condition of them allowing the loved one in the room, they'll have the power of attorney sign a DNR. You know, it's it's so it's hard to um, it's really hard to wrap your head around this. And for those people who are not woken up, it's it's exceedingly hard. So, you know, that I want to just share my closing thoughts. And then, Karen, I'm going to give you the floor to share anything else that you want to share. But, you know, Grace is dead because I was programmed to believe hospitals are safe zones. And my goal in, in doing this podcast is to shine God's light on evil. And that's that's why we're doing this. That's why I had Karen on today. And I hope that you do at least one thing with this podcast. And that is, you know, 10,000 people watch this. And if every one of the 10,000 shares this with 100 people, that means a million people will see this. And then we have a chance to have a million people woken up or at least take a step to waking up. Protect yourself if you end up having to go into a hospital, you really need to be on guard uh, and know what what the hospital's agenda is before 
going in. So I challenge everybody listening, do something with the talents that God gave you. Uh, that's the what the parable of the talents is. And the simple thing anybody can do is share this with, with other people. So Karen, you've got the you've got the last word adding anything that you want. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Um, I, I don't know how long I've got. I've got several points, but um, Go ahead. Uh, the, the thing is, is that uh, despite the fact that uh, we didn't want to talk about the merits of ivermectin, for somebody in your audience who is not a believer, I would just say, um, despite the hospital, John Zingzheim walked out after 10 months. Um, yes. And uh, the reason he walked out, uh, because... Uh, there were people that found a way to get him ivermectin. Yep, and right. um, he, uh, because it is well known with the studies and everything else that else is out there, um, uh, that ivermectin does in fact work. And that information, by the way, was in the record. Uh, the appendix that I provided is over two inches thick and 500 pages. Uh, so the justices do have that information. Um, and so the little bit you saw um, was not the extent of what they were learning. They've got a lot of information uh, to go through. And so that's one thing. The other thing is, in addition to John Zingzheim, um, um, I absolutely believe that uh, um, in, in August of 2021, I became very ill with COVID. I spent three weeks in the hospital. Um, and in fact, at that time, I didn't even know how bad remdesivir was. And they gave me the remdesivir. They wanted me to go to a different hospital where I could be vented. And I just said, no, I was on a high flow and I clung to it. I said, I'm not leaving. Um, but the thing is, is that my husband smuggled up ivermectin to me. And that's why I'm here. And I believe God allowed me to uh, go through that experience and survive um, because it was in October that I started getting these phone calls, got the phone call from Alan Gall. And uh, once that case got out there, um, I have had calls from, again, all over this country and um, all over the state of Wisconsin telling the same story. And so it's very important that, as you said, um, that your listeners share this story um, it's not going away and it's going to get worse until people stand up and say, we've had enough, stop the killing. Um, as you know, Scott, I ran for attorney general this past year. I didn't run um, because I needed a career change. As you can see, my hair is white. Um, I'm, I'm getting real close to 70 and I would prefer to do anything but this. Um, but it's, it's like nobody else was standing up. And I wanted to try to stop the killing. And I figured if I was in a statewide race um, talking about this and giving a voice to the people, that that might make a difference. And um, all I know is, is that there were an, all, an awful lot of people that all of a sudden were going, they, they uh, stopped being afraid to talk about their experience. And so we have I believe we have thousands of cases just in Wisconsin and tens and tens of thousands across uh, the country, if not well into a million. Uh, people that went into the hospital, they most likely early on, they didn't die of COVID. They died of, of the treatment. Um, they were put on ventilators. They were left alone. They were starved. They had no um, um, water and, uh, and, uh, and sadly, they died. And uh, we have to remember them. Um, I am a student of history, and uh, uh, there's a time to stop this. And we're right there, right now. And we need to draw a line and go not one step further. And uh, so my message is this had better stop now. And um, we need legislators to stand up. We need um, whistleblowers. And um, in, I, I will close, and I just want to say uh, that the Amos Center for Justice, I started that two and a half years ago, and unfortunately, I mean, I need help. I need help from attorneys that are willing to help as we move forward. Uh, we have plans for strategic litigation um, in moving forward. We're not going to sit and wait, um, and uh, so we need funding. 
And uh, to that end, if uh, you have any people um, that uh, are interested in donating, they can go to our donate button at amoscenterforjustice.org. Uh, we are also having uh, fundraising dinners around the state, and we have one coming up on February 4th. And if anybody in Wisconsin wants to go to that, uh, they can go to our website. Uh, we have a legal fundraiser uh, called uh, Every Life Matters, and that is going to be a legal offense fund. And uh, it is $100 a ticket. And uh, that is because we need people to understand that we are fighting for people's lives. We are fighting for justice. Yeah, Don put it up on the screen while you're we talking. Yes. So I, I had mm -hmm. given him that flyer. So that'll, yep. uh, I, I think that's fantastic. So you're, these 300 cases you have already, you are, are you looking for more than Karen? If people have, have had this experience with a loved one, do you want them to contact you? Well, first of all, the 300 cases I have access to, they are not all my clients, but they are okay. ones that have uh, come to me um, and, and uh, for information purposes. Um, in terms of people in Wisconsin in particular, uh, you can contact me. What we are doing right now is we are reviewing those cases with um, 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 a retired uh, um, nurse. Uh, who spent years in um, uh, the critical care units. And uh, we are looking at them and we are evaluating how to proceed right now. And so that's where we're at. There's there's no guarantees. This is not medical malpractice. Yeah, it's um, not. It, it, uh, this is a conspiracy to commit murder. It's, of course, right on. It is so wonderful to hear you say that. Hardly anybody gets that. You know, malpractice has an incidence of negligence, and this is not negligence. Uh, no, this, this is intentional. Yep, this is intentional. That's that's right on. Karen, yes. it is quite a blessing to have you on today. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, anybody listening on top of uh, sharing this message, uh, pray for this opportunity. Um, and please pray for Karen. You know, she is, she's in this fight. And, um I, I, we're we're in this because because we care. So thank thank you very much for coming, Karen. Thank you, thank you for having me. God bless you. Now to your regularly scheduled program.